Welcome to Balance of Power on 1039-1450 WKXL, nhtalkradio.com. Also, wherever you get your podcasts, I'm Ken Kale, joined by our astute panel, two-time U.S. Representative Paul Hodes, former senior staffer and campaign manager Matt Robeson, and columnist and political analyst. Welcome back, Alicia Preston. Great to have you back, Alicia. Glad to be here. Congress is about to pass the $1.9 trillion COVID relief bill with some small changes in the Senate. It came down to a party line vote. So Joe Biden and the Democrats won that war. But the next question is, can they win the peace? And by that, I mean the politics of how this bill will be seen by the American people. So what should Democrats do now? And what should Republicans who haven't seemed to have a clear message about the bill do? And we'll start with you, Alicia. I think non-political Americans of all political persuasions, meaning the people that don't do what we all do, which is talk about this stuff and eat and breathe it all the time, I think they're going to like it. Um, You know, for all the metrics out there about the economy, for the average person, um, and I can speak to, you know, myself and my circle of friends, things are still not good out there. The economy is not good. Families are still struggling. And all of my personal friends' situations, every household is in some capacity, not where they were financially one year ago. And I think the American public are going to appreciate. They're going to appreciate the checks. They're going to appreciate the stimulus for their schools. They're going to appreciate um, even the child tax credits that are in it. I think that political talking heads, and I'll include myself in one, can point out the flaws. And that is that Look, I'm all for things like child tax credits. I'm a true Republican. Cut taxes anywhere and everywhere you possibly can, but you've got to not spend that money if you're going to do it. And this bill has a lot of spending and nowhere to get the money from. And I'm not going to point out in the bill where I think we should remove some. There's a lot of talk of that the formula for distribution of the money to the states and cities is is flawed um, and, and bloats to blue states. But it's, it's a very simple formula that you have to have money to spend money. And if you're going to cut revenue, you've got to cut spending. And this bill does not do that. Congressman Hodes. Um, you know, it's, it's interesting. This bill actually um, is, uh, is aligned with Democratic Party values. It helps people at the lower end of the income scale. It helps um, middle Americans. Uh, It helps uh, states. It helps small businesses. It um, has a lot of other stuff in it. I mean, it's a, it's a huge bill. It's probably big enough. The Democrats learned from the recovery act uh, uh, back when I was in, in Congress, which wasn't big enough. Um, And they're following the guidance of economists who say it's got to be big enough in order to get the economy moving again. Um, But beyond the kind of overarching democratic values, and I read somewhere today that the bill does not help the top 1% of Americans. So unlike the bent of the previous administration, which was to help those at the top, and um, do a PR effort with everybody else uh, to pull the wool over their eyes. This really does direct help where help is needed. And help is desperately needed right now 
by ordinary average Americans. If you look at the numbers of people who are hungry, who are still lining up for food, the numbers of people whose jobs have been lost. And although the unemployment figures have come down a little bit, a lot of people think it's because people have left uh, the workforce. Um, and, and so ordinary Americans and small businesses are are in good are, are in desperate straits right now. And this bill uh, is the kind of relief that Biden ran on. Um, it, it, it also provides uh, for uh, huge support for making sure that vaccinations happen and speed up um, and that we really deal with COVID. So it, it's a signature piece of legislation. And at least according to the polls, it enjoys huge support among the American people, a, 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 a genuine majority of Americans of all stripes um, will support this bill and will be grateful for the relief. You know, I, I'm a, I work with a group called the Concord Coalition and the Concord Coalition is all about deficits. And uh, when I went to Congress, I was sort of, uh, I, I don't know, I, was, I called myself a New Hampshire Democrat. I went to Congress uh, concerned about uh, annual deficits and the national debt. And I still remain concerned about uh, de debt and deficits. Um, and without a doubt, uh, if, you, uh, if you look at the way economists will talk about things, they'll say at a time of desperate straits, it's up to government to come in and spend big to try to fix things. And, and that's what we're doing. Um, I, for one, would be really happy uh, to see um, a tax bill that rolled back the uh, Trump tax cuts uh, a, for which 83%, uh, 83 cents of every dollar went to the very top. Um, I think, I, I don't remember the exact number, but it was, it was pretty big. And if you want to pay for, for this uh, relief bill, roll back those tax cuts. Um, not going to hurt the economy. It's not going to hurt the billionaires whose wealth, uh, you know, something like 46 of the world's billionaires have more wealth than the bottom 50% of all Americans. I mean, the statistics are just startling. And during the pandemic, those at the very, very top have only increased their wealth exponentially, while the rest of us have really uh, been hurting. So I think there are ways to pay for this, um, which would make me as a, as a mild deficit hawk happy. Um, uh, it, it, it's, it's good government to pay for what you got to spend, but this is emergency relief spending. I think um, it's remarkable that we've been able to get it through uh, and get it through pretty much intact. Um, I never, as we've talked about on this show, and, and others on Beyond Politics, uh, we never really thought that the minimum wage was going to survive. Um, uh, it was just never on the card. So all in all, I think Americans are going to be happy about this, um, and uh, it will do a lot to, to start to bring us back to some semblance of normality. Your thoughts, Matt? Uh, in terms of your question about what comes next for each party. I agree that 
with Paul that Democrats learned some lessons from the last time they went through a, a stimulus or recovery package in 2009. Paul was in Congress for that. I was working in Congress for that. And lesson number one was exactly what Paul said. Don't underdo it. And clearly they got it right. They're not going to underdo this. And they've look on this show about a month ago, we were talking about, well, would they compromise? Would they try and throw a bone to the group of Republican senators who approached them about cutting back on the on the scale of the program? I predicted incorrectly that they would shave off a, a couple hundred billion in order to win some Republican votes. They have clearly gone with no, look, if we do one thing and one thing only, we are not going to underdo this package. We are going to put everything we can into the scale of the relief. But what you were asking, Ken, was about winning the peace, the, the, the political perception that's going to come next. I think they also have learned the lesson of last time. Paul will remember very, very well what happened in 2009 after the Congress passed, Paul voted for it, the American Relief and Recovery Act. Ara, the, the, the stimulus bill. Well, President Obama was very reluctant to sell it. He, he says that in his own memoir. He didn't want to do a victory lap or spike the football. And so he gave some speeches and he talked about millions of jobs that it would save or create. It was very vague. And he talked a lot about investments for the future, which Republican language expert Frank Luntz pointed out, yeah, that, that, sounds, that sounds like a code for big government spending. And so Republicans came right into that breach, right into that gap of Democrats refusing to really nail home the message for the American people. And they called it a failed trillion dollar stimulus. They pointed out Solyndra, they pointed out little flaws in it. And at one point there was a poll that came out in which something like 60% of the country said that they were sick of the tax increases that had come from that stimulus where in fact 95% had experienced a tax decrease because of the stimulus. So Republicans won that messaging round. So I, I, look, I think that Alicia is 100% right. Polls show that two thirds of Americans, real Americans, not talking head political junkies like us, really like this. It's a good starting place for Democrats. And I would predict sure to go wrong. But I would predict that the Biden administration is going to coordinate with Democratic members of Congress to absolutely nail and repeat over and over again, not fuzzy examples, but real world examples of real human beings who are going to be helped by this COVID relief aid. On the Republican side, I, you know, I defer to Alicia. She's the, she's the Republican messaging expert, not me. But there are Republican uh, messaging groups that have started to run ads against Democrats saying, basically, this is too much spending. And I would, if I had to make a prediction, I would say, look, they're going to look at the polling here. They're going to say, this is really popular. Let's not fight this battle. Let's just say Democrats are doing their usual thing. They're spending too much. They're being liberals. They're big government socialists. Let's fight the next battle. Let's say, all right, you got this one. But the next thing Democrats try to pass, it's going to be more? Really? Already? You want, you, want, you want to spend more? You want to spend trillions and trillions more? And they'll drive the socialism message on that. So that, that's, my, that's my gut on it. We'll see how it plays out. 
So let me just jump quick, quickly in, Alicia. I don't. Uh, you you want to go ahead? No, go ahead. What I was going to tell you about was what it was like to campaign in the wake of the uh, Recovery Act. Because remember, well, let's let's go back into the Wayback Machine. So it's 2010. And I'm running for the United States Senate as the Democratic candidate for New Hampshire. And what I've got to defend is I got to defend the Recovery Act. Nobody on the campaign trail seemed to care that much about TARP. Nobody understood it or what it or what it was, but there was TARP, where, by the way, no bankers went to jail, no, nobody was held accountable, homeowners lost their homes, uh, the big banks made out like bandits. I, I, I opposed TARP. I didn't get any credit for it. All, and then, by the way, the trifecta, the trifecta for trying to run for the U.S. Senate in 2010 was we had Obama president, we had recovery, we had TARP, oh yeah, Healthcare, and 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 you know I'm a big fan of President Obama's. I was like the first congressman from any early state to endorse him. I was his national co-chair. Uh, it was great. He was MIA because it it was clear he didn't really really like the the political maneuvering that he would have to do um, because. He got he got politics, but it was like the politics of governance were just too much, too heavy a lift for him to really get his hands dirty. So in the Recovery Act, the the tax cuts all of a sudden became, as Matt said, uh, a, ta a tax burden on Americans when they'd actually seen a not a, a tiny tax cut, and so I was having to defend. Um, this ephemeral thing that nobody could get their handle on it. This time around, by the way, in the Recovery Act, I could run on this. I could talk about the stories of Americans who were helped. I could talk about people in New Hampshire. I could find story after story about people who were helped with, with this provision and that provision. So that's that's pretty good. And, and the Biden team is not making the mistake that the Obama team made. They have built popular support for it. They are going to galvanize up and down the tickets and the uh, among electeds how to message this. Um, and I think they Biden learned a lot from the disaster uh, back in 2010 when we will recall Republicans swept everything. I lost my race for the U.S. Senate, um, and and here and, and and in some ways, I think the 2010 election you could connect the dots right right to um, Donald Trump. Joe Biden and his people are not making those same mistakes, and it's really important that they not. So, in terms of the future. I think Republicans have a, a tougher job this time around attacking the Recovery um, Act or this, this rescue plan. 
And, and they will go, you know, they'll say we're socialists. They'll say you're just tax and spend liberals doing their tax and spend thing. And they're going to rediscover that they're deficit hawks. All of a sudden, they're going to they're going to discover that the national debt isn't where we want it to be and that the deficits are big and say, look at what the Democrats have are doing to you and your kids. I think the Democrats politically have a much better argument going into the next election cycle when it comes to this legislation. Absolutely. I mean, to Matt's point, two thirds of the country want this bill. You get out there and you campaign on this and say it's too much money and I'm the Democratic opponent. I'm going to put Sally Smith up, who finally was able to catch up on her mortgage and say, you didn't you wanted me to lose my home. Without the Democrat, I would have lost my home. I'm going to do all that. Republicans need to stay a little clear of this. Republicans need to answer the question when asked and say, I was all for the stimulus checks. I was also the extended unemployment. But look, it was just too much money going to states that didn't need it. It was a handout. It was a gift to their Democratic colleagues. They redid the formula from under the from the previous one. That's the reason I voted against it. I completely wanted to support the things that would actually help American families, just not the stuff that helped bureaucrats. And that's it. Say nothing more and only say that if you're asked. Other than that, campaign and all the other things that the Democrats are going to screw up for the next year. <laughs> so, <laughs> All right. In the run up to the passing of the COVID relief bill, it was once again obvious that moderate Democrats hold a lot of power in the Senate these days. And in particular, Joe Manchin. A whole bill was held up for more than 10 hours to work out compromises to satisfy him. He's also been the center of attention on another hot topic, the filibuster. And many Democrats are itching to do away with it entirely. They say they can't pass laws that the American people want on climate change, democracy reform, the minimum wage, and other issues that the filibuster puts the minority in charge. Republicans say it's essential to protecting the minority party's views in America. And in the middle is that guy again, Joe Manchin. He's insisted that he will not get rid of the filibuster. But this weekend, he said that he would be open to going back to filibusters like in Mr. Smith goes to Washington and uh, other measures that make it harder to use. So can this panel uh, agree on some compromise? to the Senate filibuster, or do you think it needs to stay the way it is right now, Mr. Hodes? So way back when, um, uh, way back when, you know, there were blue dog Democrats. Uh, there were Democrats from conservative states who whose um, constituency were centrist and centrist right. Um, there were a lot of them in the House. I mean, when I served, there were like 60 blue dog Democrats and, and you, had to, you had to really answer to the blue dogs in terms of crafting programs and legislation. I mean, it was the blue dog Democrats who nearly torpedoed um, uh, the um, uh, Obamacare and they had to be dealt with and they had to be answered to and they had to be listened to and their views Many of them were pro-life Democrats. Now that's become a total oxymoron in the modern democratic era when it's you're either left or more left or how far left can you go? Let me just fall off the uh, edge of the known universe to the left. And that still may not be good enough for a lot of uh, folks who are progressives. So Joe Manchin in some ways is a, is a throwback. He comes from this, from this 
crazy place. I mean, I don't know if any of you have visited West Virginia. I've been there. Um, and uh, it is, it's a poor state. Uh, the schools are terrible. The healthcare is terrible. Um, the coal is, you know, people are still thinking about mining coal, which is totally obsolete. Uh, they got, they got not a lot. I mean, they're pretty this good. This segment of our program brought to you by the Tourism Bureau of West Virginia. Yeah, right. So, I mean, they're pretty good. By the way, they're pretty good on the arts. I, I care about that. I'm a national counselor on the arts. We went down there and uh, and they've got they've got a lot of arts right around the govern, governor's palace and all that, all that. So that's OK. But it's a very conservative um, it's a very conservative state. It's really red, and Joe Manchin has has survived in a red in a red state. So his politics, uh, he now finds himself in in sort of a catbird seat with Democrats because of the slim majority. They need Joe Manchin, and frankly, uh, the filibuster has now been misused and abused enough. So its time ought to come to an end in terms of the filibuster as we know it. Um, it has been misused and abused by Mitch McConnell to become a tyrannical tool of the tyrant of the minority, and it's time to change. I love the Mr. Smith goes to Washington idea. Take the filibuster back to what it was supposed to be. Get onto the floor and uh, have your aides bring you uh, Gatorade and talk until you fall over and then take a vote. Um, and that would be, it would make for pretty good television. I mean, you know, just think in a corner of your stream on your computer, you could have some windbag senator talking ad nauseum, saying the same thing over and again, or reading, reading, reading bills or, or reading the newspaper out loud to, to, to do a filibuster. But at least we know we get to a vote. So I think that's a pretty, pretty kind of, I think it's a fun compromise. I mean, I think it it sort of would put some of the some of the some of the juice back in politics for the Senate, and maybe they'd even get something done. Alicia, well, first of all, I have road trip through West Virginia, and they've got something called the Mountain Park Byway, which you're literally driving on top of a mountain, and it's really cool, and the scenery is amazing, and you can also go caving and see natural geodes and stuff. So I endorse the western part of West. Virginia for its scenery. So on the filibuster, the following statement I'm going to make most people actually agree with. I like the filibuster when my party is in the minority. That's how everybody actually feels. And so, but if I were to be a purist, I would say, I don't think you should just be able to vote to say I'm filibustering, I'm with Paul. Make them stand up there and do an actual filibuster. I promise you it will not be on a corner in my computer. I will not be monitoring it. But if they're going to do it, they should do that. Matt? Last week, when we were without Alicia, I had to play the role of the resident Republican on the panel. And so maybe that's gotten in my head. But I actually think Democrats have gotten a little out ahead of themselves on their, their discussion of getting rid of the filibuster. It's not that I think it's wonderful. Right. And it's not that I it, there's there's it's not in the Constitution. It, it's an accident of history that we even have it. And the current form of it is only a few decades old, which is why we had a movie like Mr. Smith Goes to Washington, in which you actually had to perform a filibuster. But you do have to ask the question, which Republican friends of mine have been asking me this week. What have Republicans actually stopped so far that Democrats have wanted to get done? I do think 
when you when we were just talking about the COVID relief bill, and it is a notable and very progressive achievement for Democrats. It's it's projected to reduce poverty in America by one third. It's it's supposed to lift. 13 million Americans out of poverty. It's going to cut child poverty by more than half. These are big liberal positions. And so I would say when it comes to the filibuster, have the Republicans stop something first so that you can make a case on why you need a more substantial change. And then the final thing I'll say, because I know we're running up against the end of this segment, is I personally favor an approach that maintains the filibuster, but that requires that all bills receive whatever margin the majority holds plus two senators from the minority party. So Democrats currently hold 50 seats. I would require 52 votes for passage to include two Republican votes. That would mean that the minority gets a voice, they get some compromise, they get to work on bills, and it would include the, the, the voice of the minority party, but it would not mean you'd have to get 60% of the Senate in order to pass any meaningful legislation. Russian intelligence, not an oxymoron. Uh, they have been trying to uh, amp up misinformation and distrust in vaccines in America. Panel, in an effort to fight back, would you like to offer any experiences on or information on COVID vaccines? How can we set the record straight and help people get over the hump and get the vaccines, Alicia? Well, I think part of the problem is not just the Russian interference, but that somehow vaccination became partisan. Um, and for some reason, my side of the aisle um, is more opposed to it than Democrats. And I think it had to do with a lot of the denial of the severity of the virus from the get-go, the need of a vaccine from the get-go. But I would like to say to members of my party that subscribe to that, first of all, Donald Trump and Melania got it in January before they left the White House. You can credit Donald Trump with doing the warp speed or whatever he calls it to get the vaccination out. It was under his administration that started. This isn't about distrust in government and distrust in, you know, the FDA or whomever's approving these vaccines. It's, you know, you'd have to have quite the conspiracy in a bipartisan nature, Republicans, Democrats, Biden and Trump, to believe that this vaccine is dangerous or untested. So put faith in whomever politically you want and understand that everyone's in an agreement that this vaccine is good, it's safe, and it's needed so we can all get back to normal lives. And whether that is socially or economically, individually, um, sometimes you have to make the decision to put faith in someone else, particularly those who might be more informed than the rest of us are on a topic like this. Congressman Hodes, have you had your vaccine yet? I was uh, actually vaccinated yesterday. Uh, uh. Pego and I and Scuppers the dog uh, traveled over to the New Hampshire Speedway in Loudoun, where things were beautifully organized. It was really uh, extraordinary. We talked to one of the people working there, huge numbers of volunteers, huge numbers of registered nurses, volunteers. Uh, directions were clear. Uh, it, was, it was just a seamless operation. I have to give Big, big kudos to the state of New Hampshire, uh, the health department, 
uh, the way it was coordinated. Uh, one of the people there told us uh, about how amazed she was at, at how quickly this was able to be put together. When Johnson & Johnson announced uh, that they were going to make the vaccines available, this uh, setup was, was, was put together literally in a week. They had big tents. Um, it was it was just a seamless operation. Pego and I were just were were amazed. Uh, there were people directing you in your car. You never had to get out of your car. We were able to keep scuppers from attacking the registered nurses. That was a that was a big plus. Um, we scuppers was not vaccinated, um, uh, although because he's just not old enough. And uh, but he was he was well behaved. And the whole thing from start to finish for us, now we went on Monday, they had already on Saturday and Sunday delivered, I, I don't know the exact number, something like eight or 9,000 uh, plus vaccinations already on Saturday and Sunday when I gathered there were bigger crowds. Uh, but it was quick, it was easy. Um, and after we got the shot, we um, were, uh, we drove um, uh, around the speedway to a holding area where uh, people, volunteer nurses came and asked us how we were feeling, asked us if uh, for any symptoms, gave us really good information about what to do if uh, we had any kind of reaction. They you waited there while uh, to make sure that there was no adverse reaction. Um, it was it was easy. I, I mean, I was glad to do this in one shot. Uh, and I know that there are arguments back and forth about the the percentage efficacy of one vaccination over another. But the bottom line is this is really a, a, an, a an important matter of public health and civic duty. It really, it really is. It, it, there's nothing political about this because uh, it's, it is the key, I think, to uh, getting the uh, coronavirus COVID-19 under control. And, uh, you know, I mean, on Rachel Maddow the other day, <laughs> they had some fella um, who was uh, dancing on a frozen Indian lake after he'd gotten, or a frozen lake after he had gotten his his uh, vaccination. Uh, I think he was an Indian American of the Sikh persuasion and he was doing um, an Indian dance of joy after he'd gotten his vaccination. And, and uh, I'm not dancing, um, I'm, I'm sitting here talking to, to all of you, but, but I am really glad to have gotten the vaccination because as the CDC has said, if it, once you have uh, a number of the both parties vaccinated, you can start to enjoy things that for the past year have, have been foreclosed, like having dinner with friends inside without masks. Um, so this is, it's really, really important. And kudos, kudos to the state for the way um, this was done. Um, now, today I woke up feeling a hundred years old. And that means that uh, the, my immune system is being called upon uh, to rev itself up and prepare to battle any uh, possible infection. So I'll take 
feeling 100 years old, which isn't for me that far away anyway, but I'll take feeling 100 years old uh, today and even tomorrow. Um, and other than that, no, no, ad, no, you know, no, no big reaction. Um, but I think it's really important. So my message is that no matter what Vladimir Putin says uh, about the vaccines, uh, it's time for people to to get vaccinated when they can, and let's uh, people move beyond the political about this and see each other as fellow citizens. We're all Americans. And uh, we owe it to each other to do whatever we can to, to uh, be safe ourselves. And it means safety for all of us. So you are one and done, Paul? I'm one and done, baby. That's, they jab me. They, they, you know, the single jabber. I'm one and done and happy about it. Uh, so so uh, our listeners can't see me, but okay. So now I'm doing the Indian dance of joy on the radio. Now, I, I had one a couple of weeks ago, and I, I have another one in a couple of weeks uh, at the uh, Sears or the old Sears Automotive Center on Loudon Road at Steeplegate Mall. And everything went smoothly there uh, as well, I'm happy to say. Matt, uh, your thoughts? I would just add, I actually think it's good that Paul is talking about the fact that he feels 100 years old. One of the problems we've had from the get-go is science is a process. It's not a, oh, we, we now magically have the right answer, and that is the right answer for all time. Scientists are sometimes afraid, and communications folks are sometimes afraid, Alicia knows this really well, to admit that there's learning, ambiguity, nuance, that there's any gray areas to things. One of the problems we've had from the get-go is that there has been some uncertainty. We're learning all the time. Some of the top experts around the world and in this country admit that there are still major things we don't know about the coronavirus. And so, yes, we have learned things over time about the best ways to handle the infection, the, the, the best ways to protect ourselves, what we should do with masks. And of course, there was the factor that there was some political leadership in this country that had a vested interest in spreading more misinformation. And now, of course, we have the Russians doing the same thing. So I don't blame anybody for feeling some sense of hesitancy, confusion. Let's, let's wait and see on this. I think it's good when, when we're straight with people about, you know what, you get this shot, you may feel like crap for a day or two. It's still worthwhile. And you're, you're still, you're still going to be really happy you did it. And the, the final thing I'd say is Alicia's right that it's disproportionately more, more conservative folks, Republicans. I think it's something like 28% of Republicans are saying that they will definitely not get vaccinated currently. I don't believe that that's a view that will hold for all time. I think people will get used to this. Um, and so I, I would just add to Alicia's really excellent messaging on that. I, I think that was, that was a great take on it. Um, you know, as a Democrat, I would just say, hey, you know what? Democrats don't believe you Republicans are all going to get vaccinated. So, so own the libs. Go out and do it and uh, make us look like idiots. Well, the COVID relief bill all but done. There's a long, long to-do list still remaining. What should the next big item for Congress and this administration be and why, Alicia? Immigration reform is huge. 
we've got a serious problem at the border right now um, because of both economic problems and the COVID, vac the COVID virus spreading through Central America. Um, they, migrants are coming over being told that they will be able to get in the border um, under Joe Biden's presidency. That's obviously not as simple as it is, but they are piling up at the border, thousands and thousands of people a day, um, and it has to be addressed. It, we have to figure out how to handle this massive surge of migration over the southern border. Now, the Biden administration has reopened some of the teen um, housing. Uh, I am not opposed to that, but I think we have to remember that this was done under Donald Trump. This was done under Barack Obama. It is a terrible solution, but I don't know of any other one and neither do apparently the last three administrations to handle such an influx. And no one wants kids separated from their parents. I don't want kids housed in you know, the facilities they're being housed in, but we've got to come up with a way to address this. We've got to come up with it yesterday. You know, we're all busy talking about, myself included, the royal family or Donald Trump or this, that, and the other thing. And there's all these things we're not focused on that are really, really serious right now. And I would put immigration reform number one. I would include in that um, protection for DACA for the dreamers that are here, that are working, that have families and responsibilities and are not here illegally out of any responsibility or fault of their own. Um, but I think there is a massive situation when it comes to immigration, legal immigration, illegal immigration, and cross-border migration that has to be addressed immediately. Congressman Hodes. Uh, Alicia, does that mean that Harry, Prince Harry, is an immigrant that we should be worried about? I mean, can we talk about Harry and Meghan? Can we deport them? I didn't realize that was an <laughs> really? option. Are, are they, do they put that on the table? Does he have a green card? I mean, I'm not sure what his status is, but I think it should be looked into. And I'm on, I'm all for deportation. I'm just going to say it. <laughs> I mean, we're going to, we can send him back to Guatemala. I don't, he can go anywhere he wants. I'd like him to get off my primetime Sunday night spot though. Come on, they 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 had a story to tell that was well. Let, let me ask you a question: story. Could we retroactively deport Dr. Seuss? He's not American. Oh, yeah. Yeah. do you know who should be first in the chopping block? Who, Mr. Potato Head? Oh, Mr. <laughs> hey, but listen, that guy. I, I just want to tell you that Mr. Potato Head gets us into the the whole um, uh, um, gender at birth discussion. And I don't know that we want to all really go there because now there is not going to be any more Mr. Potato Head. I think it's now Potato Head, Mr. Ms. Uh, unisex Potato Head. I think we've done away with the he, him designation for Potato Head uh, in, the, in the interest of political correctness. But I digress. I digress. I, 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 I agree with Alicia that uh, immigration reform is really important. Uh, and I, I agree that, especially after the last uh, four years, um, the situation at the border is terrible, and it's been terrible for a, a long time. I also think that it's going to be a real challenge to, I mean, we, we couldn't get any Republican support for the rescue plan in either the House or the Senate. Just imagine uh, taking on immigration reform now, uh, I think it would be really difficult. I think there is an argument that uh, infrastructure could be next. 
uh, in terms of its importance as a jobs bill, especially following on to the rescue plan. Uh, although it uh, will certainly require investment, there's going to be a very, very good economic ar argument that uh, dealing with infrastructure as the second step of the kind of rescue, uh, rebuild the economy um, uh, uh, path is directly targeted at putting a lot of people, a lot of Americans back to work doing really critical work. Um, I mean, look at the mess in Texas. Look at the mess of our infrastructure is in. Um, we need to get about the business of building a 21st century infrastructure in terms of modernizing our grid, fixing our highways, repairing our roads and bridges. Uh, and I think it's a massive jobs program uh, for Americans that if handled right um, would cement a dem democratic success. Matt? I think both of those issues are important and in a way it highlights the gumball problem that we have in general. There are a lot of really deeply important issues that have gone unaddressed because of, it's trite to call it gridlock, but for lack of a better term, gridlock. They have gone unaddressed because we have gotten caught on a partisan fight done for communications and electoral advantage that amounts to nothing in terms of benefit to the American people. Look at the saga of the Affordable Care Act passed in 2009 and ever since a political football which the Republican controlled House of Representatives repealed or attempted to repeal 44 times. They, they, they brought up the same bill to repeal it 44 times never were able to enunciate an alternative, and we're still stuck in this fight 11 years later. That's the nature of where we've landed. And it's because both parties are incentivized by the set of rules that we have constructed around our campaigns and elections to maximize turnout from the most extreme elements of their party, the most reliable voters, they are not incentivized politically to appeal to the center where the broadest swath of Americans ideologically reside. And so I agree that immigration is critical. I agree that infrastructure is critical. And Paul may be right. That may be the next thing that moves. But I think the most important thing is HR1 and pro-democracy reform. Unless we fix the outside incentives to both parties to compete against each other to compete for the center of, of, the, of America, uh, ideologically, where most voters reside and away from the extremes, we're not going to get sustained bipartisan legislation to fix our problems that America so badly needs. So I would advocate for pro-democracy reforms that get rid of partisan gerrymandering, big money in politics, and all of these voting barriers that skew the campaign process. If we fix that, other things can follow. And unfortunately, we have no more time to talk about the Royals because that'll do it for this edition of Balance of Power. For Paul Hose, Matt Robeson, and Alicia Preston, I'm Ken Kale. See you next time on Balance of Power.